Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn to Revelation chapter 3? Uh, we're continuing our series called Christian Atheists, and the whole idea behind it is we know what an atheist is. There's someone who lives their life as though there is no God, but a Christian atheist is someone who believes that there is a God, but continues to live their life in a way that says that they don't really believe there is a God. And if you're like me, uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday, you had some time to stuff yourself silly, and then you laid on the couch, and the lions are ruining my holiday tradition of watching them lose. So it doesn't feel like being a little kid anymore. But then the other thing you do is you waste time on social media, right? You're laying there on the couch, and you're looking for cat memes and things like that. And I saw one that had some really interesting contradictory quotes, and it kind of made me laugh, so I'm going to share them with you. And one of them says, I can resist anything except temptation by the great Oscar Wilde. And I love this one, too, by Andy Warhol, who said, I am a deeply superficial person. Yeah, not that great, but it's pretty funny. I love this one by Yogi Berra and all of his quotes saying, no one goes to that restaurant anymore. It's always too crowded. <laughs> and then Irene Peter says, always be sincere, even though you, you do not necessarily mean it. And then uh, this is probably the most cutting one, is I believe in God, but I don't want to go overboard for him. And that is by the Christian atheist. You see, that statement doesn't make sense. If we believe that there is a God, that we believe that created everything that is, he created you, it says that he knit you together in your mother's wombs, that he had a plan and a purpose for you before the foundations of the earth were laid, he came and laid his life down for you to restore you, to redeem you, to pour out blessings on you, to give you peace and joy, to give you happiness, to give you salvation, to give you a hope and a future. If we believe that he's done all of these things, and yet we come to him, we're kind of like, Meh. And what we've become is, we've become a lukewarm Christian. You probably knew someone that was really, really passionate about Jesus at one point. Because probably there's some bad associations that are associated with people. Bad associations associated. Sorry, I'm being redundant. You have some bad ideas in your mind of someone that's really passionate about Jesus. You probably remember someone in high school or maybe there's someone at work that always wore the Christian t-shirts, Right? You like remember like the, the Jesus Cola or whatever ones looked like the Coca-Cola, like there's nothing like the real thing. You're like, oh, that's kind of funny. Yeah, no, not really. And I remember I had one. I owned one Christian t-shirt in my life, and it was because it said Satan sucks. And um, that's the only time my parents would let me use that word, and I got to use it in church now. I actually had an atheist that was a chemistry uh, teacher in high school, and he read that shirt, and he's like, I don't believe there's a Satan, but I do believe he sucks. <laughs> and so that kind of made me laugh. And uh, they had their testaments. Remember those? The little testaments. Um, other terrible, cheesy things. They were always going around, and they were telling everybody about Jesus. They might have had their little New Testament that they kept in the back pocket, and they were always going around telling everybody about Jesus and what he'd done. And you're like, man, could you just tone it down a little bit? You're making this all look really, really bad, and you're making me not want to really be associated with you and people who are like you. Just stop being so passionate. You're being really weird about it. But what's weird is that if we believe that God really is who the Bible says he is, if we really believe that he's done everything that we believe he's done, then how could we help but be passionate about him? If we believe that we are saved because of what it is that Jesus has done, then that should be life-changing for us. That should be the driving, motivating factor of our entire life. We can't just be meh about Jesus. It's either we're passionate about him and we're all in for him, or we don't really believe he is who he says he is. We don't believe the things that we claim we believe. 
And this is what a lukewarm Christian is. A lukewarm Christian is someone who craves acceptance from people more than acceptance from God. We're in the social media world we live in. You, know, you post something and then you wait. Did someone like it? I got a like. Okay, I got the smiley face. Got a frowny face. Not real happy about that. Be trying to people like me? Do they approve of what it is that I've posted? Uh, you're always like posting pictures of yourself looking way better than you ever look. Like I just woke up this morning. You got your hair all slicked back and you know just got out of the gym. You did two push-ups and took a picture of yourself. But we're always just trying to think, what do other people think about me? But this is what the Bible says. Jesus says, woe to you when all other men think well of you. If we're living our lives based off of what other people think about us, if we're just living our lives trying to, to please other people and have them think highly of us, then we're not living our lives concerned about what it is that our Heavenly Father thinks about us. Number two, they rarely share their faith in Christ. And I think there's two reasons behind this. Is number one, you don't believe that God has the power to actually change someone. You meet someone like, man, they are messed up. I'm not even going to bother telling them about Jesus. Or number two, you're, you're scared of what they're going to think of you if you share your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're scared that you're going to be rejected by them. Maybe you're scared of what they're going to think of you. They're going to think you have the Christian t-shirts at home, whatever it is. But someone who isn't passionate about Jesus rarely shares their faith in Christ. Number three, they do whatever it takes to alleviate their guilt. And this is one of the things I love. Like we have a brand, we live in a culture where we brand everything. And we rebrand things to make them seem better than they really are. Like adult language. Like we don't just say, like, hey, I'm just going to use really filthy, I'm going to be a potty mouth. Like, this is adult language. You can't drop the F-bomb because you're only eight years old. You have to be an adult like me because then you can use adult language. Or adult entertainment. We're always trying to rebrand things to make them seem better than they really are. Uh, number four, thinks more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. And this is what Paul says. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What he's saying is that while we live here on earth, our life is defined, it is marked by Jesus. Everything that we do is for Jesus. It's the, the power of Jesus, the presence of God himself living inside of us. To live is Christ. And he says, but to die is gain. It's even better for us when we die than it is while we're alive. But most people don't believe that. Everybody's like, I'd rather live to be 115 years old and wear diapers and be all by myself. I don't want to die. Jesus, don't let me die. But if we believe that really to die is gain and we go home to our Father, that we're united with him forevermore, we're reunited with the people that have gone before us who have believed in Jesus, then to die really is gain. I love how Paul is even talking about it. He's trying to weigh it out like, hmm, do I want to go die or do I want to stay here? And he's like, I really want to die and go to heaven, but for your sake, I guess I'm going to stay here a little bit longer. That's the kind of life I want to live. It's like, okay, guys, I really want to die. I got a hangnail. I'm thinking about just letting the infection set in and kill me. But because you all need me, I'm going to stick around for a little bit longer. Uh, number, <laughs> I don't know where I'm at now, sorry. Number five, they gauge their morality by comparing to others. Have you ever done that? It's like, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I mean, I didn't do anything as bad as they did. It's like we have a lawn, if you live in a subdivision, you're like, well, my lawn might not be great, but look at their lawn. Theirs is even worse. And what I do is I water my lawn just enough to make it look better than my neighbor's yard. It doesn't have to look great. I just want it to look better than the people who are around me. And we do that with our faith. Like, you know, I know I might not be quite where it is. I might not be completely passionate about Jesus, but I'm certainly doing better than that other person. 
Uh, number six, wants to be saved from the penalty of sin without changing their life. Is Jesus saved me? I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to have to do anything to change the life that I'm living right now. Number seven, only turns to God when they are in a bind. This is where we treat God like our, he's just another tool that we have in our toolbox. I have three of them in my toolbox. I don't remember what all three of them are. But what we do is say, oh no, I got a bad report from the doctor. I've got cancer. Jesus, I need you. I'm going to get God out of my toolbox. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pursue him. I'm going to go to church. Jesus, heal me. And then the chemotherapy works. You're like, I'm all better. Jesus, back in the toolbox, and I'll get you out if I run into any issues later. And that's what we do. We're like, oh God, I, I'm economically, I'm hurting, or I'm scared of this situation. Jesus, I need you for something, but then as soon as we have what we need, we just put them back. Number eight, gives whenever it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. Jesus actually talks about that. The Pharisees are coming through, and they're giving their offerings when everybody's looking. It's like, hey, you looking at me? See that white bucket coming through? Look at this. It's a big one. Putting it in the offering box. And then it goes on by, and you're like, mm-hmm, I give. It's probably like a quarter in it anyways. And, but then the other thing is, you know what? I'm going to give if, it does, if I can continue to have all the luxury and all of the things that I want, then I guess I can give. But I'm not going to give sacrificially to you, Jesus. And then, number nine, wants the benefits of what Christ did without conforming to who he is. Saying, Jesus, thank you for the peace. Thank you for the joy. I thank you for all of the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you that I'm blessed in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus but I don't want to have to change to actually be like you, Jesus. I just want all of the blessings that you have for me, but I don't want the greatest blessing, which is being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And then number 10, isn't much different from the rest of the world. A lukewarm Christian is someone who's divorcing at the same rate as the world that's around us. It's someone that's cheating on their taxes at the same rate as someone that's around us, using the same language, watching the same things, living the same life, and honestly doesn't look any different from anybody else in our culture because at the core of who they are, they really aren't different. Now, how do I know so much about lukewarm Christians? It's because I've been one. All of these things I listed, these were things from my own life, things from my own experience. Of times when I knew that I was professing with my mouth that I loved Jesus and that I was a follower of Jesus, but by the way that I lived my life, I was a lukewarm Christian. That even happened to me when I was at a church. I was in a band down in Tennessee and I really felt the Lord move on my heart to come and to be a part of serving in the local church. Quit the band, moved back to Michigan, uh, got hired on as a worship leader and I was like, all right, this is gonna be awesome. I'm just gonna go into work and my Bible is gonna be levitating over my desk and I'm just gonna read it and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna meet with people. It's just gonna be awesome and all of these things. And then what I found out is that the work of ministry can oftentimes be so much and keep you so busy that you forget to let the Lord minister to you and you forget to minister to Jesus. And there were times when the only time I was praying when I was praying publicly on a stage. The only times that I was reading my Bible when I was, I was trying to, to learn something to teach to other people. I was never reading it devotionally to let God minister to my heart. I was never praying. I was never doing any of those things unless it was for the work of the ministry. And what ended up happening was I was a full-time pastor and a part-time Christian. I was a full-time, on a payroll, working at a church, but I wasn't a full-time follower of Jesus anymore. 
I was a part-time follower of Jesus. And that can happen to any of us in any of our jobs. Maybe you're a teacher, and it's easy to be a full-time teacher and a part-time follower of Jesus. Maybe you're, uh, you know, with a, if you're a parent, oh my goodness, the responsibility and the time commitment that it takes to raise kids well, uh, it can make it so you're a full-time parent and a part-time Christian. Whatever job it is that you have, the natural temptation is always going to be for you to be working fully at that and only halfway follow Jesus. Now, it's so easy to be a Christian in our culture that it can be hard to be a real Christian. It can, hard to be, it can be hard to be passionate about Jesus because it's so easy to follow Jesus. It doesn't cost us anything. You see other churches in other countries where there's persecution and it costs them something to follow Jesus. And the church there is always strong and vibrant. It's growing because if there's pressure on you to follow Jesus, it means that you have to decide either I'm in this thing 100% and I'm going for it no matter what the consequences may be, or because of the cost of following Jesus, I'm going to get out. If I don't really believe this, if I don't really believe that Jesus is worth more than anything else in this world, then I'm just going to hop out because it's not worth the pressure that I'm taking for it. One of the best things that could happen to the American church would be for us to undergo some persecution. For there to be a cost associated with following Jesus. Because what would happen is there would be an immediate purging of the church. People that aren't really following Jesus like, I'm out of here, I don't want anything to do with this. And what would be left is the few people who are passionate about Jesus have said that I have tasted and I've seen that you're good. Your value and worth is more than anything else in all of this world. And I'm willing to lay down everything I am, everything I have, my life itself, because what I have found in you is the most valuable thing there is. And if that ever happens here, the church is going to explode. Just like the church is done in China, just like it's done in all the East Asian countries where it's been persecuted. But because it's so easy to follow Jesus in the United States of America, it's really hard to follow him. And this is the situation that the church in Laodicea found themselves in. They were incredibly rich so wealthy. In fact, uh, before the book of Revelation was written, about 35 years before that, there was this powerful earthquake that destroyed the city, and they had so much money that they rebuilt it quickly, and they rebuilt it better than it was before. They had arenas, they had uh, theaters, they had bathhouses, they had everything that you could imagine, the best of the best, the newest, most incredible architecture. It was it. They were the wealthiest city in the area. They had a huge uh, gold refining industry there. Uh, they were doing white linens, which were very hard to produce. They were even a, a center of the medical world at the time. They were producing a salve that you'd put on your eyes that would help prevent them from going blind. And all of these things going on, they were rich beyond belief, had all the luxury in the world, but the church there had become filled with lukewarm Christians. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is writing to seven churches in the beginning of it. He's writing these letters to these churches. And to six of them, he starts out by saying, you're doing this really, really well, and here's the area that you need correction in. But to the church in Laodicea, Jesus doesn't say anything that they're doing well. He just jumps right in to bring them correction and he call them to repentance. And this is what he says in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. That's meaning Jesus is saying this to them. And Jesus says, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, 
But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be ashamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And so what Jesus is saying at the very beginning of this passage is that he knows you. Jesus knows you. Not what we say we believe, not what we say our, our, our doctrine, our theology is, not what you confess and tell other people that you believe. Jesus knows you. He knows your actions. He knows the things that you do. He knows the way that you're living your life. And that is always the greatest indicator of what you really believe. Our words can be meaningless. We can say one thing and do another. I mean, that's, that's what's so interesting about the political world is everybody's out there espousing these beliefs and then you find out in their private life they're not doing anything that they say. And it's the same with us. How many pastors have fallen because they're up on, on their stage and they're proclaiming one thing and then you find out they're doing something else in their life. And Jesus is saying that that's the way it is for all of us. He doesn't just know what it is that we say publicly. He knows what we do in private. He knows the true condition of our hearts. He knows what it is that we really believe which is reflected in the way that we live our life. And he knows if we're hot or if we're cold. And he knows that if we're lukewarm. And for the Laodiceans, what this hot or cold thing means is it's not saying, I wish that you were hot for me, like passionate about Jesus, or cold meaning I don't like Jesus at all. That's not at all what, what God is saying. What he's saying is that I wish that you would give me honor. Because for the Laodiceans, they had the aqueducts that came in and they brought water and they didn't have the ability to refrigerate water like we do. So near there, there was some glacial runoff that would come in and it would be very cold water that would come in on the aqueducts. And there was also some geothermal activity near there so they could bring in really hot water on the aqueducts as well. And as you all know, a hot bath is good. A lukewarm bath is terrible. When you are thirsty, getting a nice cold drink is a good thing. Getting a lukewarm drink is nasty. How many of you, you've gotten uh, you know, a cold beverage, and then it gets lukewarm, and you taste it, and you're like, oh gosh, this is the worst thing on earth. And that's what's happening, is they have all these ceremonies. So if you're an important person, you go to the bathhouse at the public gatherings, and it's like the public bath thing's weird for us anyways, but it was really cool for them. And the hot water's coming into the bathhouse. And if you were important, then you were honored, and you were allowed in to go first to take your bath when the water's still hot before it cools off. And if you're not very important socially, you're not given honor, then you have to go in when the water is really dirty and gross and lukewarm. If you're at a ceremony where they're drinking water as a part of that, if you're an important and honored guest, you got to drink first when the water was still cold and quenching to your thirst. If you weren't important and you weren't honored, then you were given the leftover lukewarm water, which was nasty. And Jesus is saying, 
I don't want the lukewarm water. Jesus wants us to honor him first, not to have him be the afterthought in our life. Are we honoring Jesus first and foremost where we're, either, we're giving him the hot and we're giving him the cold? Or are we giving him the leftovers because everything else in our life is of greater importance and more honor than Jesus is? Have our careers, have our finances, our families, have these things become more important to us than Jesus himself? Are we honoring them? Are we giving them the hot and the cold in our life? And are we just giving Jesus the leftovers, the lukewarm inside of our life? Because lukewarmness makes Jesus want to puke. I know that's a deeply theological statement. But it's true. The word that is used there is uh, emeo, which means to spew, to spit, or vomit. It means utter rejection, supremely repulsed. Think of food poisoning. Have you ever gone to eat somewhere and you got food poisoning and there was no holding anything in anywhere on your body? Your body was just rejecting what it was that was inside of you. Well, that's what Jesus is saying, is that when we are lukewarm, when we're just giving him the leftovers in our life, we're not passionate about him and who he is, that it's rejectable by him. Now, we all have puke triggers, uh, just last night, I was brushing my tongue, right? And, and I'm like, because I like to brush really deep. And Anna's like, why do you do that? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you got to brush way back there. She's like, why? And I'm like, why would you ask that? You don't brush like way back there? What's going on here? I mean, for me, you got to brush your tongue until you're puking in the sink or else it's not clean. <laughs> Another thing for me, one of my puke triggers, and we all have them, is uh, baby diapers, It's when they're wearing the onesie and you know they need to have their diaper changed because it's coming out the neck of their onesie. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm like, Anna, I don't know if I can do this. There have been times where it's just like it's causing me, to, I'm literally gagging. It's that puke reflex is going on in there. I remember one time, Easton's a baby and Anna was still working in Kalamazoo. She's driving all the way to Kalamazoo and we first moved over here. And so I'm watching Easton and I'm tired and I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm watching him and he's just sitting there playing and I'm closing my eyes and looking up and then I ended up falling asleep and I woke up. Easton's completely naked. <laughs> he has a spatula, which I don't even know where he got that from. And he's done his duty and he smeared it himself, flinging it with a spatula. I mean, it's like all over the walls. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what to do. And I went and I got some vinyl gloves on for food prep. And I'm thinking, <laughs> set him down in the bathtub. And then I just had to like collect myself. And okay, you can do this. Like get psyched up. Because that was my puke trigger. Every one of us, I know you guys are like, that's disgusting. Well, I've got to work with the text that I'm given, you know. And, and Jesus' puke trigger is our lukewarmness. What makes Jesus want to vomit, to be supremely repulsed, to gag, is when we're just lukewarm about him. When we're not passionate about who he is. When we're not passionate about what he's done. See, this is why it's so repulsive to Jesus. It's because he's God. He's the one that's always been He's the one that created us. He breathed life into us. 
He loves us so much that he laid his life down for us on the cross in the most humiliating, most painful death that you can die. He didn't deserve it at all. He came and he was rejected by us. We sinned against him. We rebelled against him. And yet even though we were living as enemies as the cross, he came because he loved us so much. He didn't reject us. He didn't say, get away from me. He didn't say, you deserve my wrath and I'm just going to pour it out on you. He came himself and he took the full wrath of God upon himself so that we we wouldn't have to undergo that so that we could have new life so that we could have relationship restored with God our Father and so when we come to God and we're just like meh it's repulsive to Jesus because of who he is because of what he's done for us because of what the true reaction of our hearts should be to him like some of you, you went out on Black Friday and you risked your life and every limb and you might have compromised your faith and done some things that you wouldn't even tell a priest about. But why did you do it? Because you went out there and you spent all of your money and you trampled and were trampled and you fought over TVs because you loved your children so much or your, your spouse that you just wanted to give them this incredible gift that nearly cost you your very life. And you've all done that. You've spent all your money and you've gotten your kid this the most amazing gift. You just can't wait for them to open it. They're going to be so happy. And they open it and they're like, oh, look, the box. I'm going to play with the balled up ribbon instead. And you're like, no, what are you doing? And you're either going to have rage build up inside. Like, do you know what I went through to get that gift for you that you just tossed aside like it was nothing? Or you're just going to throw up in your mouth a little bit. <laughs> and that's what Jesus does with us. Because he gave everything. And he loves us so much. He's worthy of our affection. He's worthy of being first in our life. He's worthy of us being passionate about who he is and living our life fully sold out for him, for his plans and his purposes in our life. But so many times we look at this incredible gift of salvation that he's bought for us with his own blood. We look at all the blessings that he wants to pour out on us. And we're like, eh, I don't really need that. We think that we don't need God. We don't need the gift that he gives us. And this is what Jesus says of that. He says, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor, and blind, and naked. And Jesus isn't saying this to condemn you. He isn't saying this because he's like, you know, you're not worth anything. He's saying this to remind us of the true condition of our hearts. He's saying this to remind us, you think that because you have money, because you have luxury, because you have a career, because you have all these other things that you don't need, you don't have what it is that you really need? He's saying, what you really need is me. You've been content being blind and naked. You're really poor. You're miserable. You're wretched. You don't have any of the things that you think you have. What you've put your hope in is worthless. And the one thing you really need is me, and I came to give myself to you. And you don't even want it because you think you already have everything. And what Jesus does is he comes to us in that place of where we're lukewarm, we're not passionate about God, we're not living our lives for him, and he invites us to turn back from indifference. 
He says, because of your nakedness, because of your blindness and your wretchedness and how poor you are, he says, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments from me so that you will not be ashamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. See, Jesus is so good. He's so loving. He's so merciful towards us that instead of rejecting us because we've rejected him, instead of condemning us because we reject his gift of salvation and we become lukewarm and indifferent towards him, he comes and he reminds us of our true spiritual state. He reminds us of who we really are without him. Not to condemn us, but to call us back to him. He says, come back to me. Make me the passion of your heart. Make me the passion of your life, your greatest pursuit. He says, buy gold for me that's purified in the fire. Instead of thinking that the gold refining business in your, in your city is what's going to give you security, we always think, like, when the economy's bad, what do we buy? We buy gold because it's the standard. It's something that's going to be timeless. We'll always have provision for ourselves if we buy gold. And Jesus is saying, you don't need that gold. What you need is the gold that only I have to give to you. You need the salvation that I have to give to you. It's been purified by fire. I give you life itself. He says, buy white garments from me for your nakedness. See, what it says is that Jesus, he gives us robes of righteousness. We can try to cover ourselves with the finest clothing there is because we're trying to hide our shame, but Jesus says that you're still spiritually naked. What you need is the spiritual clothing that I give you. Because right now what we do spiritually is we're trying to cover ourselves up. We're trying to hide the sin in our life. We're trying to hide the shameful things that we've done or have been done to us. And Jesus says, if you come to me, then I'm going to cover all of that for you. And you won't be defined by your wickedness. You won't be defined by your sin or what's been done to you. You're going to have robes of righteousness. So when I look at you, all I see is the purity of my own son, Jesus Christ. He says, buy ointment for your eyes so that you can see. Just as they were selling ointment and developing it there so that they could cure blindness, he says, "If you don't need that because you're spiritually blind, but if you come to me, I will open your eyes so that you can see the world as it really is, so that you can see me, so that you can see how great my love is for you, so that you can see how good all of the things I have to offer you are, so that you can see how worthless the other pursuits in your life are and how valuable pursuing me is. And then he ends by saying, let me in. Just let Jesus in. Even though you've been pursuing other things, even though you've been indifferent towards him, he's still pursuing you. It says that he's standing at the door of your heart. Even when you've been far from him, even when you've been pursuing other things, it says that he still didn't give up on you. He comes to the door of your heart and he's knocking on it and he's saying, let me in, let me in. I know what it is that you've been doing. I know that you've been running away from me. I know that you've been trying to hide from me, but I'm coming after you. I love you so much that I'm coming to your heart and I'm knocking on it. I'm saying, let me in, let me in, let me 
me into your heart and I'll change you and I'll make you new and I'll bring healing to all of the hurt and broken parts of who you are. All you have to do is open the door to me and just let me in. And when you do that, he ignites a passion inside of your heart for Jesus and for the life that he's called you to. When you do that, he ignites a passion in your heart for his kingdom cause and you want to go to the lost, to the broken, to the hurting and proclaim that the same Jesus that knocked in your heart and changed you is the same Jesus that can go to them and change their heart and give them life and give them freedom and bring them healing. But we have to open that door to King Jesus who comes to your heart and knocks. Because he says this, he comes and he brings correction and discipline to all those that he loves. If you know that the way that you've been living your life isn't the way that God's been calling you to live, Jesus isn't coming to condemn you. You don't have to try to ignore him knocking on your heart because you don't want him to see the true condition of your life. He knows you just the way you are. And he loves you. He knows if you're not passionate about him. He knows if you've been lukewarm in your faith. He knows if you've never had any faith. But he loves you just the same. And he's coming to you this morning to bring you correction because he loves you. Because he wants more for you. But you have to open the door. And you have to let him in. And this morning, let's take a moment to pray together. Because Jesus speaks to us, every one of us. We have the ability to hear God. So Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would search our hearts and that you would know us. And that you would bring revelation to us this morning. God, have, have I been a lukewarm Christian? And God, have I not been living with any faith at all? And this morning, he's knocking on the door of your heart. Not to shame you, but because he loves you so much that he wants to come in and it says that he will dine with you as one person dines with a friend, meaning that he's going to have that kind of a relationship with you. And it says that he's going to take you and he's going to seat you on his throne of victory. He's going to give you new life. He's going to fill you with passion for him. He's going to fill you with passion for his kingdom cause. He's going to enable you to live in a new way. He's going to do things through you that you can't even imagine are possible. And it might seem to you today where you're at that with the way your life is going, with the way things are right now, that that could never be a possibility. But that's not for you to figure out how it's going to happen. The only thing you have to do is to hear Jesus knock on the door of your heart and open it to let him in, and he's going to do the rest. So this morning, if that's you, and Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, let him in. 
And you just pray this. Father, I love you. God, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my lukewarmness. Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Jesus, would you come in as my friend, that I would know you and have that intimate and close relationship with you. Jesus, would you transform my life. From this day forward, I'm going to follow you wherever you lead me, whatever you speak to me, I'll be obedient. I'm going to follow you. Jesus, set my heart on fire. Then never again would I live my life more passionate about anything else in this world than I am about you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I encourage you this morning to continue to worship the Lord and allow him to speak to us and to thank him for what it is.